this morning, we're going to look at that text we heard from 1 Corinthians chapter 2 as the framework for how we're going to hear God's word today. Two Sundays ago, uh, if you were here as Kevin introduced me this morning, I preached my last Sunday as the rector of Christ Church. It's the church that we planted 15 years ago in Winston-Salem. And the lectionary text for that Sunday focused on the centrality of the message of the cross. So I ended my ministry really where it began, uh, preaching the cross of Jesus, preaching the cross of Jesus. And now by God's providence, the lectionary text, these were assigned readings for this Sunday. If you're not from uh, Church of the Lamb, uh, one of the things that the church does to prevent the, the preacher from just riding his biblical hobby horse every Sunday <laughs> is that there are suggested Bible readings for the church to follow over a three-year period, and it gives us a greater scope of the scriptures, uh, typically a broader scope than just the preacher's interest for that particular Sunday. And it is God's providence that that assigned Bible reading for today places us right back at the foot of the cross and the foundation of our message and ministry, right back at the foot of the cross and the foundation of our message and our ministry. And, that, and what Paul says here is how I pray to God that I will serve you this summer as Kevin and Katie are away. First Corinthians 2, 1 and 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You know, the more I preach Christ and him crucified, the more I come to love the cross and see God's power manifest as it is proclaimed. Let me tell you a story of a good friend of mine, John Schuler, who was one of the handful of people who were really responsible for me being an Anglican priest. So if, you're, if you uh, are happy I'm here, it's, uh, you should thank him. If you're not, you should blame him. So, uh, but John Stuhler, over 20 years ago, led a mission to Canterbury, England, on the occasion of the 1400th, 1400th anniversary of the coming of Christianity to that city, Canterbury, England. And during that mission, he had a relationship, formed a relationship with a street vendor named Kevin. And Kevin was from the islands, from the British West Indies. And he had that beautiful, you know, uh, I've, had, I've had friends from Barbados and they thought that they had a British accent. Yes, man, I've got a British accent. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but I'm sure Kevin probably thought he had a British accent too. And he sold jewelry from a little stand there on the street. And once as John was talking with Kevin, three young women from Belgium uh, started browsing through the necklaces and each one of them chose a cross that they would, were going to purchase and would wear. And so this is, this is typical of my friend John. John asked if he could pray a blessing over the crosses. He doesn't have any idea of personal specs. <laughs> These women just showed up. They're looking at the jewelry. And so John says, uh, if, asked if he could pray a blessing over the crosses that the girls had just bought. And they looked at him as if they, he had two heads. And they, but they said, okay. And so John prayed, this is what he prayed. He prayed that the girls who wore these crosses would know and live for the Jesus who loved them and died for them on the cross. And as he prayed, 
As he prayed, they didn't bow their heads or anything like that, but they listened intently. And then John asked him, he said, because, again, he just doesn't have any personal space. He said, are y'all Christians? Or he wouldn't have said it like that. He said, are you Christians? And two of the girls said that they were Catholics, but they didn't have faith. And the third girl said she was an atheist. And so John asked the Catholic girls if they had been baptized. And they said, yes, we've been baptized. And he said, well, do you mind if I pray for you? And they said, no, we don't mind. And then he said, then again, do you mind if I lay hands on you and pray for you? Okay, I guess. And then John prayed this prayer. This is, uh, I, this is the prayer. I've got this from his mouth. Dear God, I pray that these girls know and receive Jesus. I pray that what these girls received in holy baptism would become effective in their lives right now. And as he prayed, they immediately began to weep and were filled with the presence of Jesus Christ. And all during this time, the young woman who said that she was an atheist was standing, at, uh, was staring at her friends with amazement and maybe a little bit of fear. She was just completely blown away by what was happening right in front of her. And so John turned to her and he said, do you want what these two have just received? And she said, I don't believe in God. And John said to her almost sternly, how can a girl as beautiful as you not believe that God created you? Well, her eyes got big and they swelled with tears and then, she, then at that moment, she lifted her hands to heaven and she tilted back her head in joy and exclaimed, thank you, God, <laughs> right there on the streets of Canterbury. John was already about 15 minutes late for a meeting that he had at St. Peter's Church in Canterbury. And so he asked them, do you know anyone in Belgium who loves Jesus? And the universal answer was no. <laughs> He says, I, this is John, this is, okay, John's got 30 seconds to disciple these girls. Here he, here he goes. I want you to tell people what happened to you until you find someone who knows Jesus and what you were talking about. <laughs> they will tell you what to do. <laughs> well, that's the power of the cross, cross proclaimed under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. That's, the, that's a, such an unusual story, and yet it really, really happened. You know, all of the problems of the church in Corinth that Paul will address in this letter have their origin in the fact that they have lost sight of the power of the cross and the plain, the plain message of Christ and him crucified. They were becoming, those Corinthian Christians were becoming enamored with human wisdom and accomplishments and credentials. They hmm. loved those credentials. They were becoming ashamed of the simple message of the cross because the cross does not look, and brothers and sisters, you need to remember this, the cross does not look like success. <laughs> it doesn't look smart or impressive or shiny. It looks like abject failure. <laughs> but Paul says, the Corinthians, he says to the Corinthians and to us, the only way that you can know the truth, the only way you can know the truth about God is to look at the cross. The only way you can know the truth about God is to look at the cross. The cross is what God is like. 
And throughout this letter, Paul is challenging and deconstructing the Corinthians' understanding of wisdom because their view of wisdom, of worldly wisdom, the wisdom of, wisdom of man, of what, mean, what it means to be smart and accomplished, is based on a paradigm that is essentially hostile to and rebellion against and in rebellion against God. And the message of the cross is the only antidote to that. So when Paul evangelized the Corinthians, he didn't couch the gospel. He tells us here that he didn't couch the gospel in a way that accommodated worldly values. He did not let the, listen, the cultural expectations, the milieu in which he found himself in, he didn't let those cultural expectations of Greek or Jewish society determine the content or the tone of his message. A while back, there was a young man at our church, and uh, uh, you know, I thought he was a great guy. He ended up; his father was a pastor in a different denomination, and I think he ended up going back to his dad's church, which is which is great. But on his way out, he said, uh, "Father Ben, you have a tone. You have a tone." Uh, well, I didn't realize I had a tone, but I think the tone that he heard was the gospel. <laughs> I think that's the tone. It is the, the, the truth of God in the cross that says, because of your sin and rebellion, I had to do this. That's who you are. That's what you deserve. <laughs> but it's also the place where I stretch out my arms in love and say, I love you this much. I love you this much. <laughs> and that's the tone. Thank God for that tone. Thank God for that tone. He did not tone down his message. He was not going to play the power and prestige, power and prestige game of which philosopher was the smartest. They were very enamored with what were called rhetors, R-H-E-T-O-R-S, rhetoric, rhetors. These were itinerant um, philosophers they were the rock stars of their day. They would travel from city to city in the Hellenistic world. They would gather a crowd. They would get sponsorship. And people would just, oh, they would fall all over. Oh, my goodness gracious, have you heard? Did you hear Epictetus? You know, he is a stoic moral philosopher. He is amazing. Have you heard him? They were the rock stars of their day. And that's how they were measuring the ministry of Paul and the mission of the gospel, and they were completely confused. Instead, Paul says, listen, he said, and I, you've heard this, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and or wisdom. For I determined, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message we're not in plausible words of wisdom, listen, but in, the, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Do you want what those girls just received? <laughs> so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. <laughs> now, why would Paul use this methodology of mission? 
instead of accommodating to the Corinthians' desires for the trappings of human wisdom and accomplishments. You know, why didn't he just kind of meet them halfway? <laughs> well, the first reason is this. It's that the core of the good news, the core of the good news is the person of Jesus Christ and the event of his resurrection. So the message of the gospel is about a person and what that person did. Yes, Jesus' teachings are vitally important. The gospel reading this morning taught that. You know, if you, if, you don't, if you don't apply these words, don't live these words, it's like you're building your house on the sand, basically. So the teaching of Jesus is indeed vitally important. But it, but it is the actions, it's the actions, it's what Jesus did that are the core of the gospel. So if you think Jesus is a great teacher, that's fine. But Jesus' ethical teachings are not the gospel because Christianity is not about following a philosophy but receiving and following a person. The gospel is not about following a philosophy but receiving, accepting by faith and following a person. And those ethical teachings are Jesus' way of describing what following him really looks like. Now secondly, Paul reminds them of the cross because it was the proclamation of Christ crucified that had indeed won their salvation. It was that proclamation that won their salvation. And moreover, God's use of the cross was totally beyond, God's use of the cross was totally beyond human calculation and wisdom as a means of redemption. If we were go, to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 and following, Paul says this, For since in the wisdom, listen, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. <laughs> in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The folly of what we preach, which is the cross. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly. The word there is the word from which we get the word moronic. <laughs> moronic. The cross is moronic to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, hmm. and the weakness of God is stronger than men. <laughs> you see, the cross is foolish to those who are perishing because it takes the false idols of human wisdom and accomplishment and it stands them on their heads. And we can be so tempted. Listen, I just spent... The first part of this past week was I had a wonderful experience at an, at an intensive church planting training session. And, I, and so the young men who were being formed for church planting in West Virginia and some who were actually already doing church uh, planting in West Virginia, I'm the cannon missioner. That means that, that I'm just fired out of a cannon into West Virginia to do mission. <laughs> All right, now the canon is, uh, is someone appointed by the bishop to go and be, and a missionary is just a missionary, so I'm appointed to go and help catalyze new church starts, to uh, identify church planters, equip church planters, and assist the existing churches there in West Virginia. And so we had five young men from West Virginia come to that intensive for church planting. It was awesome, folks. It was great. And there was just, there were days, I mean, it was like four days, a four-day intensive. 
and there was strat strategic and uh, uh, you know, teaching and, and structures and good advice, and every bit of that is good and valuable and godly and blessed. But we can be tempted when we go through things like that to think that our clever and well thought out and highly polished systems and structures and strategies are how we bear fruit for the kingdom of God. Folks, God does not need any of those things. Do you want what those girls just received? <laughs> I still can't get over it. It reminds me, uh, 1857, uh, Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, was about to preach at the Crystal Palace in, uh, in London, outside of London. And so he had gone, he had a big booming voice, and he didn't need amplification. And of course, the Crystal Palace was built so as not to require amplification. They didn't have that. And so he went about a day or two before he was preached there to test the acoustics of the room. And so he's there. There's only one other guy in the whole building. There's a workman up on like a balcony or something like that uh, doing something to, to fix something or whatever. And uh, Spurgeon gets in the pulpit and he, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. Testing the acoustics. And that workman heard that. He was convicted of his sin. He dropped his tools and went home. And after two days, he came back. He had received Christ. Because Haddon Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, tested the acoustics. <laughs> Strategies are great. I love them. I'm so edified by those things. But God doesn't need that. God doesn't need that. God doesn't need those things. In fact, if we take our Lord's example as being definitive, if we take our Lord Jesus Christ's example as being definitive as to the strategic means by which the kingdom of God is advanced in the world, his number one strategy is prayer and fasting. <laughs> number one. Prayer and fasting. So yes, God can use our systems and strategies when we, when we surrender them to his lordship, but we so quickly make them the focus and turn our mission and ministry into a matter of technique and cleverness. Hmm. As soon as we think that we can win people, men and women and boys and girls, to Jesus Christ, if we can just be winsome enough, or if we can just tone down our Jesus enough to get a hearing, or to be approved of, or to please men, or to tickle ears, when we do that, we are actually on the way to denying the gospel we seek to proclaim. So church, if we're going to have an effective evangelist, if we're going to be effective in the declaration, proclamation, and dissemination of the gospel of the kingdom of God, we can never, we can never, never, never amend our message in such a way as to avoid the offense and foolishness of the cross. That God defeated sin and death and hell and won for us eternal life by letting himself be nailed up on a piece of wood to suffer and die in shame and agony. The word of the cross remains moronic foolishness to those who are perishing, to those who in their pride, their prideful rebellion adamantly reject God, but to those who come humbly, that's what Kevin said at the beginning of this service, humility, to those who 
those who come humbly before the cross, it is life and peace. Anglican Bishop, late Bishop C. Kilmer Myers, used to tell the story of Emma, who was a survivor. This happened in uh, like around 1956, 1957. Told the story of Emma, who was a survivor of the Holocaust. And she would come every day out and stand outside of his Manhattan church and hurl imprecations and insults against Jesus. Standing on the street corner in Manhattan, which probably didn't seem too odd even in the 50s in Manhattan, just screaming out insults against Jesus. And finally, um, they called him Kim. Kim went outside and said, well, why don't you just come inside and tell him? <laughs> and so she disappeared into the darkness of the nave and was very quiet for about an hour. And he was wondering if she was there and he was a little worried. And so he went into the church and he found her prostrate at the foot of the cross. And he touched her on her shoulder. And she looked up with tears in her eyes. And she said, after all, he was a Jew, too. <laughs> Life and peace. Richard B. Hayes said, the cross has not been canceled out by the resurrection. Rather, to know even the risen Christ is to know him precisely as the crucified one. Any other account of his identity is not the gospel. Another commentator says, Christ remains the crucified one even as he reigns over the cosmos. You know, in fact, in John's gospel, Thomas and the disciples know that Jesus is the risen one, that the, risen, the one that they are seeing is in fact Jesus because he bears the wounds of the cross. Hmm. Hmm. There is no Christianity without the cross. Hmm. Paul's posture of this ministry of proclaiming the cross is startling. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. You know, his means of proclaiming the cross, weakness, fear, and trembling, the way he proclaimed the cross looked like the cross. <laughs> it looked like the cross. Hmm. Weakness, fear, and trembling. You know, there is no confident strutting associated with the rhetorical superstars of Paul's day. No, his method matches his message. The method and message of the cross reveal that God's strength is manifested in weakness. God's strength is manifested in weakness. And some of us really need to hear this again. Please listen. Some of us really need to hear this again this morning. We sang a song by Martha Dawn this morning, Come Away from Rush and Worry, or Rush and Hurry, excuse me. She says this. She says, even as Christ accomplished atonement for us by suffering and death, so the Lord accomplishes witness to the world. The Lord accomplishes witness to the world through our weakness. In fact, God has more need of our weakness than of our strength. As the Psalms and Isaiah teach us, God's way is not to take us out of tribulations, but to comfort us in the midst of them and to exchange our strength in the face of them by our union with Christ, please listen, brother or sister, especially many of you who need to hear this. By our union with Christ in the power of the Spirit, in our weakness, we display God's glory. If you feel weak and inadequate, God can work with that. <laughs> exactly, he's got you right where he 
Paul focuses on the cross to reveal God's work of conversion, of regeneration, of transformation is not built on human persuasion but or on human efforts, but on the radical supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Mm. Let me tell you another story about mm. the power of the cross. Mm. During April of 2021, just a couple of years ago, a young Muslim man named Erdem visited our foundations course, which is the course everybody goes through at Christ Church. It's not a new member's course. It's a, it's a, we call it the Catechism into Mere Christianity. And so, <coughs> He visited our foundations course at Christ Church because his girlfriend's parents were attending the course that he came uh, that, uh, that he came to. And one thing that will make a Muslim uh, attend a foundations course is a girlfriend. <laughs> so he came with them that night, and we were teaching on the Ten Commandments. And uh, I actually was uh, I went back and, and got the facts all over again. I wanted to tell you, you know, try to to get the facts just right. So I was actually sitting in Kevin's office yesterday talking to Erdem. I don't know if you heard me talking to him, but um, he said during the teaching that evening, the Holy Spirit began to convict him of sin as we taught on the Ten Commandments. How about that? <laughs> Law and gospel. It's like God had figured this thing out. So he was hearing the law, and he became aware of his sin. Isn't that great? It's not the end of the story. You can't stay there, but it's where it begins. So right after the teaching, though, he came up to me and said, he said, I'm going to do my Erdem impression. He was he's so energetic. He's like, uh, I don't know, he's like a, he was like an Islamic ping pong ball. <laughs> everything you're saying, everything you're saying is just like Islam. This is, Christianity is just like Islam. And I said, well, no, <laughs> it's not. And I said, Erdem, this is how it's different. Jesus Christ is the perfect king and in whom all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. <laughs> now, I want you to know I've got to stop right there. I had taken years ago an, a, an Islamic evangelism course, and everything I said to him was in complete contradiction to what I was taught. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you need to build bridges, contextualize, you know, try to build, you know, try not just ease into this a little bit. It was a, the exact opposite of that. <laughs> I said, no, Jesus Christ really did die on the cross. You know, because in Islam, they don't think Jesus died on the cross. Hmm. I said, Jesus really did die on the cross for your sin, and God raised him from the dead in victory, and now he is king over the entire universe. He is right this minute. He is king over Mecca and Medina. Jesus <laughs> is king now over Mecca and Medina. And he is going to return in glory. And everyone in Mecca and Medina is going to bend the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's how it's different. <laughs> <laughs> I failed my evangelism to Muslims, of course, at that moment. Uh -huh. it, but, but why did that happen? I didn't plan on that. Hmm. It's the message of the cross. Hmm. Under the prompting and power of the Holy Spirit. Those, mm. That was not my decision. Mm -hmm. Those were the words that the Lord gave me. Erdem said that this conversation really shook him up. So the next day he got on an airplane. He flew back to Arizona. 
And on the way back, he said he felt like he was between two religions. He felt empty, and he couldn't pray to Allah anymore. So when he got to Arizona, he got off the airplane, he disembarked, went to the ticket counter, bought a ticket back to Winston-Salem, and immediately flew back to Winston-Salem to talk to the parents of the girl that he wanted to marry. And that couple's the ones that were at the course. Well, that Sunday morning, he was sitting with those parents, David and Dawn. He was sitting with David and Dawn at Christ Church in the back. And after the service, we went into the library and talked. He had some questions, and I had a profound prompting from the Holy Spirit that, I, that God was calling me to bless him in the name of Jesus Christ who died on the cross and rose again for him. And I can't even remember I can't remember that prayer. It was a blessing. I can't remember that blessing. But uh, I remember that Erdem was weeping, and I was weeping, and David and Dawn, I think, were weeping. The power of God was present in that moment. What I found out just this weekend was that leading up to that moment, Erdem had been having dreams. Listen, he had been having, having dreams of a shepherd. He knew he was a shepherd. So it was a man with a hood, and I knew he was a shepherd. And I didn't know who he was, but he was calling my name, and he was, he was speaking my language, and calling my name as it is pronounced in my language. And he was saying, follow me. Follow me. Hmm. <laughs> well, that Monday morning, after that Sunday, he heard the Lord speak to him. He said, what are you waiting for? And so he went downstairs to David and Dawn. He asked them, are you ready for this? What must I do to be saved? <laughs> and right there, they led their future son-in-law to the Lord. Erdem said it felt as if a hand. He said, my dear father, he calls me my dear father. My dear father, it felt as if a hand was washing me all over, washing me clean. Hmm. The preaching of the cross and the power of the Spirit brought this young Muslim man to faith in the Good Shepherd. Hmm. I did everything my Muslim evangelism course said I shouldn't do in that encounter, and God, God still used the message of the cross and the power of the Spirit. Hmm. And today, Erdem and his wife have moved to Winston-Salem, and he is being formed and trained as a disciple so that he can return to his native land. <coughs> equipped with the message of Christ and him.